And I'm in the middle of something called the Remember series. And in the Remember series, I was talking with Lance this morning. I, I think the next year, um, we should name it the greatest hits. Because what we do is, is we take kind of the sermon series over the past year. And in the month of August, we kind of rehash what was talked about. In the next couple of weeks, Lance will be uh, telling us our theme for 2019. But I think it's important for us, before we move forward in the things that we feel God's calling us to, it's important for us to look back in what he's already told us. So I love the month of August, because we get to do that. The sermon series that I'm going over was one that was called Indelible. And it had to do with indelible worship, preached way back in November 2017. And the reason it was named indelible is because the definition of indelible is a mark that cannot be removed erased or washed away. A mark that cannot be removed, erased, or washed away. And the reason it was called indelible worship is because when we worship God, it should be noticeable. There should be a mark on us. Similar to my friend Kylie that I met. You know when that Kylie had an encounter with this marker, right? There's no... No getting out of it. I've also had the thing where you have the chocolate all over the face when you have, did you get into the cookies? No, I didn't. You know that there are sometimes kids, they encounter something, you know immediately what happened. Worship should be the same way. When we worship God, we should be marked. We should be noticeably different. And it can't be just washed away or scrubbed away. Much like Kylie for a couple of weeks. And when we talk about worship, I want to kind of reframe what worship is. This is a broad topic on worship. On our little, we have a little sheet that the um, worship team uses and we use, and it's entitled Worship. And today on the schedule was 21 minutes of worship. That's one element of worship, which today I'll use the term praise for. But this concept of worship is huge. In the Bible alone, there's 87 different words, these ideas of what worship actually is. Things like tithing. Things like obedience. Pastor John Hahn, our youth pastor, preached last week on obedience. Which, by the way, he said he loved the little water bottles. Because he said he loved them because it reminded him of him. So what I did is I actually got my own size water bottle (laughs) that I thought would... uh, There's actually water in here, and I didn't bring one, so I might be hitting this thing back. But (laughs) the John and Lance size water bottle. But John preached on obedience last week. It's a form of worship. I'll tell you what, as a kid's pastor, I see people worshiping all the time. We have so many volunteers who serve in our classrooms back there. I just want to take a moment on bragging our kids' department real quick. We've looked through some of the numbers, and in the past year that the kids' department has grown by about 35%. That's just the amount of kids walking through these buildings. If you go in our nursery, most of them were kind of the good old-fashioned way of, you know, babies. But we have so many more kids. In fact, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be changing some of the age groups in the classes because our classes are just overfilling with kids. We're also going to be opening it up two new classes every single Sunday morning coming up when we launch. So on a Sunday morning between both services, we'll have 10 classes open in the kids' department, which sets a record for Puget Sound Foursquare at our church on a Sunday morning. We're going to set a record with classes. It's amazing what's happening And so many of you in this room I see are serving in our back classes. And I just want to, a lot of times when I talk about serving as a kids pastor, people will tell me, it's like, yeah, I've kind of felt like I should be 
you know, involved in kids. And I'm like, when did you hear this? I'm like, I don't know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, I kind of felt like I should do it. So I just want to tell you right now, if I know that there are some of you who feel like, man, I'm just passionate about kids. Whenever I'm in the mezzanine, I see them and I'm just passionate about it. If you are, please consider this a personal invitation to come back there and worship God with us in the back. We could think sometimes that worship is only in this room, but I'll tell you what, as the kids pastor, it's not. It's all the way in the back as well. And we're doing amazing things back there. So consider this the personal invitation from all of you. Because I know that there are some of you who were called, felt called, but yet haven't yet. The book of Psalms has 140,000 words devoted to just praise. Worship is throughout the Bible. So today what I wanted to do is, is I wanted to take a look at somebody who encountered Jesus and was marked. Somebody who had a permanent marker just all over their face, who was just changed after an encounter with Jesus. So we're going to be taking a look at John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Bible tells us that before this encounter, Jesus was going from South Judea up to Galilee. So he's traveling up, and he happened to be passing through this town of Samaria. And it was interesting. I know that this person was marked. This person was changed after this encounter with Jesus. Because it says that afterward, after this encounter, the Samaritan woman went to all her friends and family and everyone in the town, and Jesus ended up staying for several days speaking the gospel. This wasn't just some happenstance encounter in the road. We know that there was an incredible change that happened, an indelible worship that was imprinted on the Samaritan woman's soul that we'll see. So I'll go ahead and start John chapter 4. You know, when I, I want to give a little bit of context to this story of the Samaritan woman. This is an encounter that we really honestly shouldn't even be reading about in the Bible. There are so many things that are preventing this encounter from happening. Because to a Jew, a Samaritan is somebody that is considered the lowest form. They're, they just utterly hated Samaritans. And Samaritan hated Jews. And the reason this hatred exists is because of something that existed for thousands of years. I'll throw my little professor hat and kind of go into the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, the na- you had the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, they were God's chosen people. And one thing I love about the nation of Israel is the name literally means one who struggles with God. And yet, just because a people or a person chooses to struggle with God, that doesn't mean that they're not chosen. Amen? So this people group that was called the ones who struggled with God struggled with him and they ended up breaking into two different nations. A civil war broke out. The north had the city of Samaria and then the south had Jerusalem in the region of Judea. And around 700 BC, the the, uh, Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom with the Samaritans. And the Assyrians were like a brutal people. I'm kind of a nerd. I really enjoy listening to some of the old like empires, like the Romans, the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians that took over this. And the Assyrians were the worst of the bunch. What they would do is, is they would come into a region and just crush it. And they would say, you know what? You know, whoever you worship, you don't worship them anymore. You worship our God. And we're going to try to completely take all of your culture and just meld it together. So the Bible actually says that after this happened in the northern kingdom where Samaria was, everyone from the empire came together and intermarried with each other. And the God that they worshipped, this Yahweh, was no longer. It was some weird kind of conglomerate of all these different gods together. 
In the southern kingdom, there was a couple hundred more years before they were conquered by a group called the Babylonians. The Babylonians, if you're going to be conquered by somebody, you'd want to be conquered by the Babylonians. Because what they would do, they would say, you know what? Keep your God, keep your religion, do your thing, just pay us taxes. We'll take a couple of your royalty over. That's where Daniel and some of those will take them over. But you can kind of keep your culture. It was during this time the Old Testament was gathered together because the Jews, they were able to keep their culture together. So you could see what the problem is. Hundreds of years later, almost a thousand years later after this, there was still hatred because the Samaritans in that northern Israel, the God that they worshipped was not Yahweh. They claimed it was Yahweh, but it was not. It was some freaky thing. Whatever they worshipped, it was not the God of the Bible. And the Jews, they would see this, this religion that they practiced, and they utterly had contempt for it because they claimed to know the truth, but they didn't. And there's also have this racial, ethnic thing, too, that they claim that they weren't true Jews, weren't truly from Abraham. And this hatred existed so much that there were genocides on both sides. Many Jews would have friends or family members who were killed by Samaritans and vice versa. We've, there's a parable in the New Testament called the Good Samaritan. And to the Jews who were hearing that at the time would have laughed because there is no such thing as a Good Samaritan. They're all evil. It kind of changes that story a little bit. So this is the context. So when Jesus is choosing to walk through Samaria, he's walking through a place that he shouldn't be because these people are less than dogs is how they were considered. So Jesus is walking through on his way up to Galilee and he has this encounter with a Samaritan woman. In verse 7, I'll go ahead and read it. Jesus is at a well in Samaria. And it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There was this hatred that existed, even so much to where this woman, I'm going to call her, to humanize her a little bit, I'm going to call her Sam. This is my friend Sam, the Samaritan woman. I think it just rolls off the tongue better than Samaritan woman every time. So Sam is sitting there at the well, and as Jesus approached her, Sam's just like, what are you even doing here? Don't you know who I am, and don't you know how you should see me? Immediately wanting to put that wall up to Jesus. I love the fact in this story, I think it shows Jesus' heart towards people. Thousands of people in the New Testament would flock to Jesus. They would seek after him, and those who were seeking would find him. But I love the fact that just because one isn't seeking Jesus doesn't mean that he won't still find you out. He decided to seek her out. I love that fact. That even when we least expect it, even when we're just kind of sitting on our own, doing our own thing, Jesus will still come out to us and mark us indelibly. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the Sam said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and livestock? I I think this is kind of interesting, because when we hear the phrase living water, we don't really have a, a term, we don't use that terminology 
nowadays. But living water is something that anybody in the ancient Near East would know what it is. Living water is an actual thing. You would have a well where you dig down into the, into the ground and you want to go deeper than the table water. And then this well, you can get water out and pull it out. But the problem is it's finite. And you can imagine in the, in the ancient Near East, if you're a herder, you have animals or livestock or plants or whatever you would do. If you get to the point where it runs out, you're in trouble, big trouble. Living water is what we would call a spring, a natural spring where it's indefinite. Water always comes. So what Jesus is saying is that, hey, if you truly knew me, you would know that I, can, I have a spring here on this land. And Sam says, uh, Jacob, who built this well, didn't find no spring, and you have no tools. What the heck are you talking about? Jesus is alluding to something here because a spring, if it was on your land, you had it made. It made the value of your property go way up. It was sought after. We see even in the Old Testament sometimes where a people group, they would dig and it would say, and they found a spring. And it's easy for us just to read over it. But when you find a spring, that's jackpot on your property. But Jesus is saying that right here where you are, there's something of value here that you've been missing all along. So then Jesus answered Sam, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I don't know if it's just because of my personality. I like to say that uh, my love language is sarcasm. But... I kind of read a little bit of sarcasm here from Sam, just kind of this response of like, okay, give me this water so I won't get thirsty again and keep coming here. I mean, we don't know what the attitude was, but I read it as like rolling the eyes, like, okay, I see what you're saying. So not an actual spring, but a figurative spring that'll come up inside of me. Why don't you give it to me? Kind of a thing. E- either way, she's kind of saying, all right, whatever, clearly we're, I'm, <laughs> we're talking about two different things here. And right here, Jesus does something so interesting to me. Rather than focusing on the spring, rather than focusing on this gift, right, this water that will never come out, he pays attention and focuses on Sam's thirst. So he doesn't focus on this water or the spring. He focuses on her thirst, what she's thirsting for. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, Sam replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. This little piece of information tells us a lot about Sam. The fact that she was married five times and divorced five times and now with another man who's not her husband. In the ancient Near East, it was relatively easy for a man to divorce a woman. You would just have to go to the town square and claim that you have some indecency was the actual word. We look at writings outside of the Bible, and you have these scholars trying to figure out what does indecency actually mean, and it kind of just means whatever the man says it is. Hey, her feet smells. It's indecent. See you later. I mean, that's kind of the way it was. But here you have this woman, Sam, who her entire life has had men come 
take from her what they wanted, and then pushed her aside. Five times to the point where now she's shacking up with some guy, not even married. You have a Samaritan woman. You have a woman who is told her entire life she is less than a dog. Jeered because the God that she worships isn't the true God. Told because of her ethnicity that she's less than. This person who was chewed up and spit out by all these different men. A woman who the world has just taken everything from her and not given her anything back. It tells us a lot about Sam. So she's sitting there at this well, having this happenstance encounter, not looking for Jesus, but yet here he is, coming to the well, and Jesus says, hey, listen, I know what you're thirsty for. This is the why he mentioned the husbands, the husbands, because what he's saying is, it's like, I know what you're thirsting for. I know what you're looking for in all these relationships. And I, Jesus does the same thing to us now. Because a lot of times, I, what'll happen is, is that we'll have our kind of lives, right? We'll have different uh, areas of life. Where we'll have Jesus where he's at, but then we find in our lives, we have things that we're thirsting for. Some of us may go to the bottle, or some of us may go to pills, or a sexual relationship, unforgiveness, bitterness, all these things that we keep going to and thirsting for. And I think what we want to do is naturally push Jesus away from those and kind of separate that part of our lives. All the while, we're not realizing Jesus has put himself right there in front of us at the well at the moment of our thirst saying, I have what you're seeking for. You will continue to thirst and you'll continue to go for that thing over and over and over again. But I have it. It's right here. I love it that Jesus' heart is one who comes to us in the moment of our thirst, right there when we least expect it. So at this point, we pick up in verse 19. And this is where Jesus begins to tell Sam what true worship is. What indelible worship is. Worship that changes us. Verse 19, after Jesus completely read Sam's mail and told everything about her, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So again, Sam kind of pulls out at this point the religion card. And say, hey, I understand that I thirst. I understand that this gift that you are giving will quench that thirst. But it's not compatible, you see, because I worship here and you worship here. My view of God is different than your view of God. And I love that Jesus just completely cuts through it and says, it doesn't matter. A time is coming and has already come when true worshipers, whatever your preconceived notion of what God is, doesn't matter anymore. 
When you get this water, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So what exactly does that mean? I just want to take a moment to go over each one of these and kind of explain what worshiping God in spirit means and worshiping God in truth. Lance had a great line that he preached when he preached this a couple of months ago um, that I'm going to steal. Actually, I won't steal that. I gave you credit, so that doesn't work. I have this great line that I just came up with. Um, (laughs) And the line that I came up with was, if you can worship truly, if you can have such a thing as true worship, you can have such a thing as false worship. That if you can worship right, you can also worship wrong. So it's important for us as we look at these two areas to figure out and close in on what true worship looks like because we could do it wrong. So the first one, worshiping God in spirit. What exactly does this mean? I mean, I think this one is a little more intuitive than worshiping God in truth, which, which I'll get to in a minute. God, he is, exists in a spiritual form, right? He's not physically here. I can imagine if you, we worshiped a God who was like right here in front of us, you could worship him by like, I don't know, fanning with fans or, you know, those palm fronds or feeding grapes, things like that, physical acts of what we can do. And we do physical acts of worship. Like I talked about, we do tithing, we do serving, we lift our hands and we praise. But there's an element of worshiping God where our souls need to come to the souls of God, right, face to face. My friend Jeremy, who was singing up here, said it. He kind of said it perfectly, like, hey, let's not just kind of sing this song. Let's take a minute and connect spiritually on this song. And true worship looks like that. This concept hit me pretty hard when I was preparing this message. Because what this means to me is not running my worship on autopilot. You guys know what autopilot is. It's something that airplanes use right after you take off. The uh, pilots can actually turn on and the computer in the airplane will begin to fly for it. And what's amazing about it, I was doing some research on autopilot. I mean, this it's crazy. What they'll do is they'll take a look at through radar. They can identify if there are other planes around. If there's the weather in front, the autopilot can literally move the plane out of weather and just completely fly, fly itself. Which is a great thing and that causes um, less human error and accidents. But every once in a while, do you ever hear stories where, like, an airplane will overshoot a runway by, like, two or 300 miles because the pilots were just kind of talking to each other or they fell asleep? There was a, a, a study that was done by a, a union. They did an anonymous survey, and it said that 57% of pilots and co-pilots admit to falling asleep while in the cockpit. 57% of a pilot or a co-pilot. And of that amount, of the 57% who said yes, a third of those said that when they were asleep, the other person next to them was asleep as well. A little terrifying. And you can kind of wonder, and this was, this was about five, six years ago in the UK union, you can kind of wonder, like, what the heck is going on? How, how is that possible? I know exactly why it's possible. Because from the outside looking in, all of the boxes are checked. They're moving weather when it should be. If there's another plane moving around, they'll make adjustments. From the tower, nothing looks wrong. In fact, from the passengers, everything looks the way it should. Even the crew member who are on board, who are separated by a thin door, have no idea that anything is wrong, that these guys are asleep, or women are asleep, and it could be really horrible. I think in our life, worship can look the same way for us. We could be on autopilot, and from the outside looking in, we are checking all the boxes. 
yep, this song's here. I'm going to go ahead and stand. I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to sing these words. Or I'm going to do my devotions today and I'm just going to go ahead and read these things and we can just get on autopilot. And listen, the reason this impacted me so much is because I live on autopilot. I live on autopilot. I mean, I have four kids at this point in life. In fact, one of my kids, Jack, we're, we're planning on going on vacation. As soon as I'm done preaching second service, I'm leaving to go to the Oregon coast for a week. My son, Jack, while we were at Mod PC yesterday, decided to throw up in the middle there and was up to one o'clock in the morning throwing up. Just kind of life with kids. My wife is actually on FaceTime right now. Hey, this thing's acting on. Say hi to my beautiful wife. And there she is. I'm FaceTiming my wife while preaching because she's not able to be here. Love you. She's not able to be here because we have a sick kid. Life is crazy. Life happens. I have kids. We have this job that, I'm, that I work in Seattle and I'm a pastor here. And I'll tell you what, it's so easy for me to flip into autopilot and make it look like I am doing all the right things. So much so that people don't even realize, maybe the people closest to me don't even realize what I'm doing. For us to worship in spirit is to turn that autopilot off and to do what Jeremy said. Hey, time out. Let me connect. Let my soul and my spirit connect with God. The way that autopilot works, at least for me, sometimes it could be an autopilot so long you forget what it's like with it off. So the second point that, as I want to close with, is to worship God in truth. And this one is not as easy for me to understand, to worship God in truth. What does that actually mean? I think that if you think of the opposite of truth, like falsehood or lies, if you worship God in lies or worship God in falsehood, we want to do the opposite of that which makes sense. But to me, worshiping God in truth means worshiping God for who he truly is. In order for us to really understand and worship God who truly is, we have to know him. I think that's why it's so important for us to sit here and be in this community, listen to sermons preached by Lance or read our Bibles, get in small groups and connect with him. Sometimes maybe it could feel like, well, that's just head knowledge. I don't, like, I really need to feed my soul. But what's so important is as we begin to understand who God is, he becomes more real to us. And as we worship in truth and who God truly is, that's when our worship becomes powerful and we become marked. I think if you want to look at who God truly is, the truth of God, you can look no farther than this encounter Jesus has with Sam. Right, We have this woman who society has cast aside, who has just completely chewed up and spit out, and yet Jesus was sitting right there with her. He wasn't afraid to put to death her wrong view of God by saying, hey, listen, you Samaritans, you don't worship what you know. However, it doesn't really matter who you think God is, because right now you can make the decision to worship God in spirit and worship God in truth. I think that all of us have these preconceived notions of who God is and these falsehoods that we either tell ourselves or other people tell us. I know for me, something that I've struggled with a lot of my life is thinking that God is angry with me and thinking that he's just kind of some bully up in the sky with magnifying glass, right? Burning ants. And I'll be honest with and vulnerable with you right now. I think a lot of the reason why I'm on this course in life was because I had that view of God. I know that was a big reason why I decided out of high school to go to Bible college. Because I didn't understand the unconditional amount of God's love. I 
thought, you know what, if I become and I devote my life to us, I can make this God love me. And this God that I've had to, over the last you know, decade and a half, as I learn and I study more about him, realizing, man, I am worshiping this false God of who I think he is. I even remember a specific time, I used to live in Colorado, and I was just overcome with God's beauty and nature. I was like fishing, and it was just like this beautiful landscape. And I just remember being in awe of God. And I had to turn my eyes down and not look up at the horizon because I just felt so much that this God whose unconditional love wasn't for me because of the mistakes that I've made and because of who I am. It took me years to realize and to get this preconceived notion of God out of my head. And I realized that that I was worshiping God in falsehood and lies about who God really is. So what I want to do right now is I want to challenge us. And I want to ask you guys a favor as we close. I know many of us have these preconceived notions of God and everything else. Would you do me a favor? And would you, when you get into this room here at Puget Sound Foursquare, would you not bring that God that I was talking about, the God who's angry, who's angry, don't bring him into this room. Please don't. Because I've spent a lot of my life worshiping that God. It is miserable. It is miserable. And some of you are sitting there and saying, that's not fair because, John, that's the only God I've ever known. That's the only God that I know. It's not fair for you to say such things. I believe that God today, as we get ready to go toward the launch, as we get ready to go into what God wants us to do as a church this year, I believe he wants to heal us of our preconceived views of God. I believe that he wants us to worship in spirit, but also worship in truth, who God truly is. I love this verse in Romans that explains God's love. It's in Romans 8. It says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that love. And I want to throw in there for me, not even John's psyche, not even you and all your mind can separate you from that love. Because God's love towards us is a one-way street. It is unconditional. And I love that picture of Sam who's sitting there at the well, feeling, not ever feeling unconditional love, feeling conditional love, at being told, I know what you're thirsting for. I have it right here. And I can heal you of your preconceived notion of what God is starting today. So I'm going to pray for us just right now. And if you can just do me a favor, just lift up your hands. I'll pray for us as we get ready to close. Father, I pray, God, that we would be a church here at Puget Sound Foursquare who would worship you in spirit and would worship you in truth. I pray, God, that you would reveal to us over the next couple of weeks, months, years, decades, lifetimes, that as we get closer to you and understand more of your true nature, that we would be able to worship in truth. And I pray that the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies the world tells ourselves about our God, I pray that we would put those to death. Heal us and help us to be able to realize who you truly are. I pray that we would be a people here that are marked that when we encounter you, people would know that we've had the encounter, that there's no bones about it. Help us in our worship. In your name we pray, amen.